Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. Good morning. If uh, you are visiting with us this morning, I too am glad you're here. And as you've heard, uh, if you are visiting or if you've been around here a while, there is much happening here at Bethesda Christian Church. It's coming to the close of summer, and I know officially there's about a month left uh, in summer. But believe it or not, next Sunday is the first Sunday of September. So I know if you're, I know if you're a student, you're like, ah, oh, school's starting. And I know some of you school starts tomorrow, but that's all right. I know if you start school tomorrow, you are probably in for a lot of breaks throughout the year. And those who start a little later might not get as many as you do tomorrow. So count your blessing. If you start school tomorrow, you get, you know, spring break, summer, uh, winter break, Easter break. You've got a lot of breaks. So uh, you'll, you're going you're gonna to do great. Uh, and we're starting our, really, we're going to start our fall season in earnest. You've heard about some of the things that are going on. Our picnic is coming up. So many things happening in and around the church. Ruth just mentioned the uh, connection classes. You received a brochure this morning when you came in. This talks about all the classes that are available uh, for adults on Sunday mornings. And look it over. There are some new offerings in here. You'll see that uh, study to show thyself approved in room 114. That's a new class. Some of the classes are currently on their summer break. And just so you know, on September 18th, the week after our picnic, this is when all these classes will be uh, back in session. Find one if you haven't made the Sunday morning connection classes a part of your Sunday morning Really, it's just another hour to get up earlier. Not really a, a big deal. And you can be here learning more. You can be studying with other people. You can make friends. It's a great way to start your Sunday before you come in here to worship the Lord. It gives you an, also, it gives you an opportunity to uh, get to know the Word better, to begin to apply it and live it in a greater way. And of course to advance and spread the word. And that's been our theme. It is going to be our theme here at Bethesda that we know the word, that we live the word, and spread the word. We've talked for the past several months about knowing the word and living the word. This morning we're going to culminate uh, our uh, focus on living the word of God. We've talked about living the word in terms of following the path, the pure path that is laid out by God's divine word. We've talked about putting our hope in the word, our trust in the word. Last week, got down to some of the brass tacks, obeying the word. And that's sometimes a tough thing to do uh, when we are confronted with uh, moral dilemmas, crises of faith, Sometimes it's difficult to be obedient to the word, but we saw how God's, uh, God's people, those who wrote scripture, they encourage us to do just that, to obey his word. And this morning, as we wrap up, I want to talk about loving God's word. 
Because if we love it, if we're, if we're founded and motivated by love for God's word, the rest of what we talk about will fall into place so much easier. And I'm going to use, as I've been doing for the past number of weeks, I'm going to use Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, if you've read it over, and I've encouraged you all to do that over the past number of weeks, you will have found that over a half a dozen times the psalmist writes about loving God's Word. I've selected a a portion near the beginning of the psalm uh, that speaks to this. And if you've uh, looked this over, you might have discovered this is a long psalm. It's 178 verses. It's the longest psalm in the Bible. And the reason is, is because it's really grouped into 22 stanzas of eight verses. And each one of those stanzas begin uh, with a Hebrew uh, letter. Uh, the alphabet of the Hebrew is, is depicted through this psalm. The 22 consonants of the Hebrew alphabet, each consonant represented from beginning to the end. If you start at the beginning, it's Aleph, and each verse actually would begin with that letter if we could read Hebrew. We lose a little bit of that when we see the translation to English. But some say that King David may have written this psalm to teach his son Solomon the alphabet. We don't know for sure who exactly wrote it, but that's one take on it. And it's really, when you think about it, if we could see the Hebrew, it really was a great uh, effort on the part of the psalmist to put this all together in a way that his people could remember it. I want us to remember it, so that's why I keep encouraging you to read it. This morning I'm going to read uh, one of the eight verse stanzas beginning at verse 41 and uh, go through 48. And if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. If not, we have the scripture on the screen. And it reads this way. Again, the focus on the love for the word. It says, may your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I can answer anyone who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Never take your word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not be put to shame. For I delight in your commands because I love them. And that's the first time the psalmist says that. But as I said, it's about eight more times he repeats it. And then the final verse, I reach out for your commands, which I love, that I may meditate on your decrees. So the psalmist that wrote this great hymn, again, it's, it's not titled, we don't know exactly who the author is, but this person trusted in God's word. He vowed to obey the word. And, and again, we read that in this stanza. He delighted in the word. He loved the word. When, the love, when love is the footing, when love is the foundation, you know, things like hope and trust and obedience, they harmonize. They coexist. Love is that necessary foundation 
If, if there were a dictator or a tyrant, you might obey him. You might obey him out of fear, not love. You probably wouldn't trust. You probably wouldn't put your hope in that uh, person. You might obey. So hope, trust, obedience, they don't harmonize when it's fear that could be the motivation. But when love is the motivation, then the, the rest becomes easier. The psalmist says he delights in God's laws. He made this bold vow to obey. I will obey forever and ever, he writes. He is actively trusting in the word that God has given him. The word being the object of his very hope. And again, it's all motivated by this delight in the law, this love for God's word. To live the word, to truly live the word, this needs to be our motivation, a love for God's word. When love is that impetus, then we can say, God, I delight in your commands because I love them. That's what the psalmist wrote, because. Because it simply means it's the reason. The reason is love. Because is a conjunction. It joins the two thoughts. I delight in your commands, God, because I love them. The reason is I love them. Love is that my motivation for obeying you, for trusting you, for hoping in your word. And he repeats it and reiterates it throughout the psalm. Love being that uh, backdrop. And love is, love is the backdrop to the entire redemption story. Love is that thread that runs throughout the whole and the entirety of Scripture. It's love of God for mankind. That's the theme that runs from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. God expressed his love. How? God expressed his love by giving us Jesus Christ, the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. It was God's plan from day one to give us this way out of the, the pitfall of sin. God expressed his love by sending his one and only son into the world. That's what our word tells us. John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's that backdrop. There's that theme of love. God so loved us. Look what he has done. Sent his Son to die for us. In Romans chapter 5, we hear it again. And it's the theme that runs throughout Scripture. God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we will, were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. This is an expression of divine love, the divine love of God Almighty in that he sent his son to die for us. The psalmist in Psalm number 119 said he has a love for God's law. He, he understood some of the love that God had for him. He didn't have the entire picture. He wasn't living in the time where Christ had already come. But he had an understanding of God's love for mankind. And so he expressed his love back to God by saying, I'll obey your precepts. I love your statutes. I love your commands. 
I need your decrees. I'm going to meditate on them. The psalmist loved the word. And he wasn't just saying it. He, was, he wasn't just giving lip service to this. He wrote about how he engaged with the word and how he expressed his love for it. In the passage we read, the psalmist gave four ways in that little passage of how he shows his love for the word. And I think these are things we can emulate. I think these are things that if we put into practice, we will begin to truly love God's word. And it's just in that last four verses of the eight that I read, I will walk about in freedom. I will speak of your statutes before kings. I will delight in your commands. I reach out for your commands, which I love. He talks about walking and speaking and delighting and and reaching. And I want to talk about these four points. And I'm going to approach them in reverse order. To me, they're somewhat of a a pyramid that the psalmist starts sort of from the top down, the, the, the more powerful to the foundation. So I want to begin with verse number uh, 48 and move back up to 45. I want to begin by talking about reach. The psalmist said, I reach out for your commands, which I love, that I may meditate on your decrees. So what does this reaching mean? What does it imply? Is it literal or is it figurative? It's there's a picture here. This is a figurative speech. You know, this is a psalm. It's a song. It uses figures in songs. We, we sung songs this morning. An artist uses figurative speech. And so here the psalmist writes, I reach, I reach out for your commands, God. And this implies an activity, not passivity, that he is doing something. He's actively pursuing God's decrees, God's word. When we reach, we use our hands, and you can picture that. The psalmist says, because I love your word, I reach for it, that I can meditate on it, that I can use it. You know, when, when might we reach for the word? Is it in the trying time Is it in the pinch when we're in a tight spot? Oh, I'll go to God's word and I'll find that comforting scripture because I'm hurting and I'm down and I'm distraught. And of course, many times we do that. We we reach for God's word. Oh, I'm having a bad day. Let me find that passage that truly lifts me up. Because in it we know we find comfort. We find encouragement. And so we reach for it in those times. But is this, what the, is this what the psalmist is saying? He's saying that and more. To reach for the word, not just, not just when you're in trouble, not just when you're struggling and when you need it. You'll find those encouraging passages. He restoreth my soul. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. I can cast all my cares on him. But love for the word is expressed when we're reaching for it. Even in the good times, even when we're not in, in a stress, even when we don't feel as we really need to go to it. 
but at all times to be reaching for the word. And the psalmist reaches for the word to meditate. So I see this reaching as I'm not just going to go to a shelf I can get at easily, but I want to reach higher into the word. I want to reach for more that I don't already know and understand. He's reaching higher and higher to a plane that's beyond what he has already received in God's word. And he he writes in this psalm and other places, I desire a greater understanding of the word. Give me understanding, he writes. I want to gain understanding, he writes. Broaden my understanding, he writes, because he's reaching higher and he's reaching for still more. And he wants another taste of God's word that he hasn't yet tasted. This is the picture I see when he says, I reach for your word, God, because I love it and I want to meditate on it. Will we not broaden our understanding of the word until we reach higher? We'll get stagnant if we stay at the same plane and we keep quoting the same verses over and over. But when we get more, when we get more into our hearts, when, when those difficult times come, you might not even have to reach to open because you've already done what we talked about way back a number of weeks ago. You've hidden the word in your heart. When love motivates When love motivates this activity, we'll not only uh, reach for the word when we're in need, but we're going to reach for it and we're going to reach higher and we're going to broaden our understandings and we're going to meditate and soak it in at all times. So reach and reach higher for the word. And now moving up, now moving up a rung, if you will, the psalmist wrote, I delight in your commands because I love them. This takes us from the hands. This takes us from the hands to internal, to the heart. If we delight in something, it's a a matter of the heart. Delight, gladness, joy. These are expressions of our inner heart. I will take joy, God, in your commands. I will delight in them because I love them. And this idea of delighting in God's law, in his word, it's not just a one-time mention. The psalmist writes throughout this psalm how he delights in God's word. And some of the reasons that he writes down that he delights in God's word are these. I delight in your word, God, because your word is my counselor. That's verse number 24. He says, the word is the director of my path. I delight in it, God, because it directs my path. That's verse 35. The word, God, your word, it offers me your compassion and it offers me your salvation. Thus I delight in it. That's verse 77 and 174. So the psalmist can't help. He cannot help but delight in God's word and love God's word as he looks and says, It's my counselor. It's my director. I see God's salvation in it. I've got to love it. I must delight in it. It's given me so much. When I need wisdom, I go to the Word. And there it is. The Word is counseling me. I need direction. The Word is the light unto my feet and the lamp unto my path. And every day, every day when I wake up, I need this assurance that I'm saved. I need to know I'm saved. God, your word tells me that. I love it. Thank you, God, for confirming it and assuring in me that I have salvation. It's founded upon your word, God. My heart delights in it. He's come to love the word because this is what he's found in it. 
And if you need wisdom, you need direction. If you're unsure about your salvation, if you have doubts, we, we heard even this morning, uh, Reverend Terry saying, if you, you have doubts, if you have questions about God, fall in love with his word. Fall in love with what he has brought to us and given us and revealed to us. And let it begin to bring joy and delight in your heart as it reveals truths to you. And you learn and you grow and you move farther up. And I take us now then to our third rung, if you will. From the hearts, or from the hands to the heart, now to, to the mouth or to the lips. This, the psalmist wrote, I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not be put to shame. And here now I think it is the real meat of loving the word and living the word. You can reach for the word. You can reach higher. You can study more. You can get it into you, but not act on it. You can delight in it. You can be so glad that God has given you such assurance or that he has encouraged you in his word, but not verbalize it. To speak it. To speak it out. And as the picture here is given in Scripture, to speak the word before kings. This is when. This is when one's convictions must run strong. To stand before a king in ancient times, that could be very dangerous. If you had to plead your cause before the king, or if you were called before a king, it was going to be a fearful exercise. It could even be your last experience in life. Kings wielded all power. They could, at the drop of a hat, take your life. George Rawlinson was an uh, English theologian and historian. This man wrote a number of books on ancient monarchies. Uh, he was an expert in uh, history of kings and kingdoms. And he, he wrote several, uh, several books. He writes of Persian monarchies, which biblical characters like Daniel, like Nehemiah, they, they dealt with these uh, foreign kings so I thought maybe we could just get a flavor for what it's like to, to be under a monarch in those days. Rawlinson wrote how kings would arbitrarily mete out justice, just executions in the most horrible ways. And in his book, he, he gives great detail to these uh, methods. And I am going to spare you those details because they're awful. I read it and I say, how can man conjure up such things in his mind to do to another living being? But I'll give you a little, in this, in this chapter he wrote about the Persian uh, kings and how they, uh, how they disciplined and carried out their law. I'll give you the, the wrap-up of his chapter. He wrote, in conclusion, we may notice as a blot upon the Persian character and system the cruelty and barbarity which was exhibited. 
not only in these abnormal acts of tyranny and violence, but also in the regular and legal punishments which were assigned to crimes and offenses. The criminal code made death the penalty of murder, rape, treason, and rebellion, but instead of stopping at this point, proceeded to visit the death penalty on even such offenses as deciding a cause wrongfully on account of a bribe, intruding without permission on the king's privacy, approaching near to one of his concubines, seating oneself even accidentally on the throne, and the like. The modes of execution were also, for the most part, unnecessarily cruel. To go to before the king could be a life-threatening situation. The book of Esther corroborates some of the things that Rawlinson wrote about intruding without permission on the king's privacy could bring death. Esther, she, was, she feared going to before King Xerxes because she feared death. It was only after a message from uh, her cousin Mordecai and after a time of fasting that she was emboldened to say, I'll go before the king. And she says, even if I perish. She knew. She knew that if the king didn't extend his golden scepter, that was it. The attendants knew what to do, and that was to not spare her life. So when the psalmist says he will speak God's word before kings without shame, he is saying something here. He is saying he will use the word shamelessly, and he will defend it fearlessly. He is not afraid, even if it's a matter of his own life. It's not uncommon for Christians for us to be taken to task for what the Bible teaches. Now some, we might shrink away. We might shrink away, we're ashamed, we're unable to really defend what the Word says. And in so doing, what are we saying? We don't really love it that much. We, we haven't come to that depth of love where we say, I love this and I'll defend it, and I'll stand fearlessly and say, it's the truth, and I know it's the truth. When we're confronted by culture, which says, this is a dusty old relic of antiquity, it's full of rules and regulations that no longer apply, they're outdated, they are intolerant, and they're prejudiced. With love, with love is our motivation. With love is, is what spurs us along, love for God and love for his word, we can mount a defense without fear of shame. And I don't want to say that we should argue about every little, uh, you know, transcription error. Oh, hey, it says that there were 72 Israelites that came into, the, uh, came into uh, uh, Egypt. Well, I think there was only 70. You know, don't argue about that. All right, these are not the arguments or the defense I'm, I'm saying that we mount to defend God's word. I'm talking about back in the plain truth of God's word. The culture has turned a blind eye to the word of God. And we know that. We know that the world hates the word of God. They reject it. And you know, that's no surprise. We should not be surprised that the world doesn't like what the Bible says. 
But it's within the church. It's within the church that it seems a love for the plain truth of the word has waned. This past spring, I was able to attend a conference with the ministerial staff here at Bethesda. And there was a presenter named John Dickerson. And Dickerson is a pastor out in Los Gatos, California. He's a former journalist. And he wrote a book titled The Great Evangelical Recession. The, open chap- the opening chapter, it says, until very recently, you know, posters and statisticians, they would say that evangelical Christians comprised about 50% of the United States. Well, that's a good thing to hear. Wow, you know, 50% uh, of the country, there are evangelical Christians. So uh, Dickerson began to think about this. When he was a journalist, he loved numbers. He said, I love numbers. I love diving into data. I like to rip, rip it apart. So he began to delve into this number, 50% of the country, evangelical Christians. And he, and he began to dig. And he took a number of uh, years to study. And he found this number came from pollsters like Gallup and George Barna and others. And the reason they were saying 50% of the country is evangelical Christian They had questions like this. Are you born again? And people would answer yes, I'm born again. So because people would answer yes, I'm born again, they get checked off as evangelical Christian. Okay, big numbers. But Dickerson began to dig into these numbers. And as he spent years studying, some of the posters began to add other questions. And he found as he looked beyond, are you born again? People answered yes that answers varied on additional questions. Because really to define evangelical Christianity as someone who just says, yes, I'm born again, that didn't seem to be firm enough. That just didn't seem to be solid enough for this John Dickerson. So he looked at questions like, is the Bible God's word without error? And the same people that would say, yes, I'm born again, would say, no, it's not the word without error. Is Jesus the only way to salvation? The same people that would check, yes, I'm born again, would check off, no, Jesus is not the only way to salvation. Is Jesus, this is the question where standing up in front of us at this uh, seminar, he said, and when people say, yes, Jesus and Allah are the same God, and they say, yes, I'm born again, he said, I need to make the separation. I don't really feel that they were, I could put them in the evangelical Christian camp. So as people responded, yes, I'm born again. And yes, Allah is the same God as uh, Jesus. The numbers begin to go down. And he found that the number of evangelical Christians in the U.S. is about 7 to 9%. When he found affirmative answers to is the Bible, the truth without error. Or a a negative answer to, uh, is Jesus and Allah the same God? Seven to nine percent. It happens outside the church that people say there's more than one way to be saved. And yes, Jesus and Allah and Buddha and Confucius, they're all the same. But when it happens inside the church, we should take notice. And if I hear someone saying such things, or if any of us do, if we encounter a Christian 
who seems well-meaning and sincere, but they can't back the plain truth of God's word. Don't pick a fight. Engage this person. Ask a question. Find out why. Hey, why do you think Jesus and Allah are the same? Or why don't you believe Jesus is the only way for salvation? Or whatever the case may be, ask a question. Take an opportunity to explore the word. Take an opportunity to help a person reach a little higher. You might win a friend. Show this person the word and how they can learn from it. Some question whether God's word is the whole truth. Some in the church feel that uh, certain commandments no longer apply. We can't wink at behavior that God, in the giving of his commandments, said, thou shalt not. Especially when that same behavior, it's not just mentioned in the Ten Commandments, but it's mentioned over and over in the New Testament to avoid. It's condemned. The, the, the psalmist would stake his very life on the word and not be ashamed. There's ten commandments, not nine. Uh, we might be called intolerant. Uh, we might be accused of judging if we stand firm on, on all of it. But Jesus said, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. For great is your reward in heaven. So truly, truly living the word, truly standing on the convictions, truly loving God's word for its plain and simple truth, it can bring accusation, it can bring persecution. But when you love it, you'll not consider the cost of defending it. You just will. And that's love. What you truly love, you will defend. Now finally, from hands to heart, to mouth, to life, to life. The psalmist wrote, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. Walk here is a metaphor for life. The author, the author of the psalm is, is walking the path plotted out by God's word. That, that is the word of God is the guide for his life, isn't it? This is, how we, this is how he lives. He lives, this, he lives this thing. He lives this thing he calls God's precepts and commands and decrees. He lives the word. He's put his hope in it, his trust in it. He's vowed his obedience to it. And now he's expressed his love for it. And his whole life is guided by it. His hands, his heart, his mouth, his walk. He has reached higher and still higher. In his heart, he has internalized it. On his lips, he's not afraid to speak about it or defend it. And it's all part of how he carries himself, the walk. We might say uh, he has a biblical worldview. A bi- biblical worldview is a term uh, we've used around here. We've used it for a number of years at our school. And to say that we have a biblical worldview, it means we live the word and all of it. We, we live according to God's word. And it's not just being a moralist, following uh, some morality that doesn't have a standard There needs to be a standard for the moralist and the standard needs to be God's word. The footing, the foundation, the standard needs to be this. To live the word, you believe the word is truth. 
the absolute moral truth that it exists, that, that, that God is omnipotent, omniscient. He's immutable. He's the center of the universe and he created everything. That Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. That heaven and hell are real. That Satan is real. That salvation is a gift from God. It's not something that we uh, gain by works. All this and more. You live without being ashamed, motivated by love for God and love for his word. And that love has got to begin, it's got to begin with a love for Jesus Christ. I love him because he first loved me. And he purchased my salvation on the cross. Do you know that love this morning? And if you're sitting here this morning and you've never realized that Jesus Christ is the one and only way that he saved you from the penalty of death and the penalty of sin. He wants you to know that love. He suffers none to be lost. Now, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His life uh, for your pardon. I mean, that's an amazing thing that God would give his son, his son would give his life for us, to pardon us. It's truly amazing. If you've never known that love this morning, I want to tell you, you can receive it. And we'd like to take time this morning to pray with you. I want to invite you all to stand as we uh, bring our service to a close. And if you need that love of Christ, it's available to you this morning. But if you've listened today and you've been challenged in what you believe if you've been challenged in your love for God's word, perhaps you do have some questions. Perhaps you do have uh, some sincere questions, tough spots in God's word. You know, you've been struggling with, why all the suffering? What about this mountain? God, I can't move it. Your word says it should move. A situation you're trying to reconcile in scripture. It's okay to have those questions. It's okay to have those doubts. God's not going to condemn you because you have a question. I believe he'd rather give you the answer. And you come to these altars this morning and you can ask God for an answer. You can ask God to help you. you know, some of these things, I'm going to admit to you, they're not easy. The answers aren't always easy. But God will, will give us answer through his word. And again, if, if you've never really received the love of Jesus Christ, he died for you. You can receive his love this morning. As we just close in a song, if anyone needs to, these altars are open and you can come and pray. And if you need someone to pray with you, you desire it, just lift your hand. Just come on down and lift your hand. We have workers here who love to pray with you, join faith with you for whatever the need. If you've never known Jesus or you're struggling with something, take time this morning to meet him here at these altars. Father, we thank you for the presence of your spirit here this morning in our meeting. God bless all who are at these altars for whatever they need, God. If they're coming for the first time to receive Jesus Christ, thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Bless them and may they follow him all the days of their lives. And any other need, God, any other struggles, any other doubts, Lord, we pray you'd provide answers. We pray that you'd give uh, your gift of mercy and grace to these that are seeking you. The psalmist sought you, God, and you were good to him. 
God, be good to all these here. And God, I pray you'd bless everyone in this sanctuary today. Bless them as they go, God. Bless their, the rest of their day. Bless their week. God, overshadow them. Set your holy angels in charge over them to keep them in all their ways and return again as we worship you again next week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you this morning.